Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 84, recorded on August 26, 2020. We knew Ian was a hero before AWS. Good evening, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Hey, Justin. How's it going? It is going good. It is uh, almost the weekend, I hope. At least I think so. So, I mean, every day is short. It's halfway day, so. through the week. Yeah, I guess. Oh, so. no, it's Thursday, I guess. Oof. Yeah. I always get confused. Is it, it's either almost over or it's almost starting again. And either way, I think I'm vaguely unsatisfied. You know, it's sort of yeah. like, uh, you know, you know how laundry just never ends. It's kind of the way show notes work for me. So my weeks are measured by show notes for the show. <laughs> and so I just know that I'll, I have this aspirational that I'll write all the show notes and we'll do the show we'll, then I'll, I'll archive them and I'll start new show notes tomorrow and I'll actually be ahead of it. And the answer is that never actually happens. So I typically frantically do the show notes on Tuesday night. <laughs> I, I sympathize. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. And, uh, and Jonathan has a similar experience with the editing of the show. Uh, which is also like laundry. So uh, Ryan and Peter uh, don't get a joy of a weekly task that they have to do for the show. So. Well, I have one. I just have never done it. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if you if you would like to get prepare. transcripts of our show, <laughs> no, no, he, he's supposed to do transcripts of the show. Uh, and then yes, homework. Uh, but uh, yeah, so if you want transcripts, you just send those emails to Ryan yep. at thecloudpod.net and let him know uh, about the show notes you'd like or the, the transcripts that you'd like yeah. to have of the show. So I will. I swear to God, I will do it. I will. I will fill our entire backlog full of transcripts. Okay, that's just that's just crazy talk. But I know. If you if we could just get from now until the future, that'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Let's let's uh, aspirational. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, let's get into news. Uh, last week, uh, Google had a six and a half hour outage. Um, I don't know if you guys Oops. were aware of this or not. Uh, I had actually just helped a friend out moving to Google Suite. And then two days later, he's like, hey, I can't attach email. Or I can't add attachments to my emails. And he sends me a screenshot. And I'm like, that's weird. I'm like, he's like, well, it's not important right now. I'll look at it in the morning with you. And I said, okay, fine. And the next morning I saw Twitter was a light fire that Google had been down for six and a half hours. Uh, and, you know, we didn't talk about last week on the show. But uh, they did release an RCA. And, uh, of course, the one thing we like about RCAs here at the CloudPod is that we learn about infrastructure of our cloud providers. Uh, and so, again, this is a hug ops moment. So, you know, sorry for all those SRE people at Google who had to work on this. But uh, we've, uh, we've learned more. And so the summary of this incident is uh, many Google services use a common internal distributed system for immutable unstructured data, also known as a binary large object or blob. Uh, this blog store or blob storage system contains a front end which interfaces with Google internal client services, a mid layer which handles metadata operations, and a back end storage for the, blo- the blobs themselves. When clients make requests to the front end, metadata operations are forwarded to the metadata service, which communicates with the storage service. Uh, apparently, an increase in traffic from another Google service started overloading the metadata service, causing tasks to become unhealthy and requests to increase in latency. And that latency prompted excessive retries, and then, of course, leading to exa- resource exhaustion and this thirding horde, uh, thirding, or, uh, thundering horde of uh, rhinos through their data center. Uh, some tasks could start, but were overwhelmed by traffic and has insufficient resources to support the load, causing that cascading failure. Uh, apparently, this was net out, you know, net net six hours of downtime. Uh, and all services were impacted exactly the same. Uh, and in their detailed RCA, they do detail what exactly the impact was to each of their services. Uh, interesting enough, though, Google Cloud Storage, which is the same basic backend of this, was not impacted uh, despite being a product that relies on the same blob storage. And this is due to the fact it has a different metadata service uh, that is isolated for the Google Cloud Storage from the main Google Cloud Storage. 
Uh, didn't Google did not tell us which service caused the problems because you know those developers shouldn't be pu- publicly shamed. Although they did break Google, so I mean that's pretty bad. That's that's a resume it's also a wor- badge of accomplishment. Yeah, it's, I would say it's a resume worthy story. I think that should go on there. I wouldn't put it on my resume, but I would bring it up in the interview. Yeah, it's kind of the world's oldest reason, though, for causing your own outage. The self inflicted DDoS is or DOS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, to prevent future occurrences of this, they are going to, uh, of course, increase capacity of their computational resources. That's all good. Outages cause. Investigate and improve health checks, because that's what we do in SRE, and evaluate and improve the back off and retry strategy used when metadata ops fails, uh, and then improve alerting for auto scaling, implement more comprehensive rate limiting controls, and add instrumentation to prevent more effective debugging of blob ops, uh, as well as improve the speed, efficiency, and automation of transferring production resources between critical tasks, and improve the internal documentation related to the rate limiting thresholds. Uh, and there's a quote at the very end of the article, Google is committed to quickly and continually improving our technology and operations to prevent service disruptions. We appreciate your patience and apologize again for any impact to your organization. We thank you for your business. Uh, yeah, so there you go. That's the Google outage and the summary of what happened last week. So what did we learn on this one, guys? Exponential I- back off. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned that I am just so glad I'm not the SRE team that because you know, I used to be the you know on the SRE teams who had to respond to similar type things and there's there's just so little that you can do and it's so hard because you're just watching a train wreck happening in in progress it sucks so I'd like to know what, I mean I don't need to know what the service was that caused the failure but I'd like to know what happened to that service that caused the failure it seems like they didn't I'm not a fan of the five whys by any means but I'd like to get, have a little more information you know, what actually happened that caused that that other service to to do the thing it did. I mean, it could be anything. It could be a bug or it could be that you know, there was more traffic. I mean, later on, we get to Google. They're talking about lots of new launches of Google Cloud Logging. As we know, Cloud Logging is a, a ripe area for abuse. <laughs> so maybe some of those changes they were made there you know, caused some of those things. So there's all kinds of things that could affect it. Um, the one thing I was most interested about was how uh, not, you know, again, this is a global outage. So, again, this is not a globally segmented data center setup, which is one of the things we talked about often on the show about, you know, know how your cloud provider designs these services. Uh, Amazon has a very, you know, region isolation focus where this is not one of those situations. This is a global service that this metadata thing probably runs on something like Spanner in the back end, which is great. Uh, but it is a risk you have to take. And so this is a cascading failure through their entire global data center system. So, again, something to keep in mind as you're designing for fault tolerance and isolation and, and the things you're doing. And keep that in mind as you architect. It's true. It's it's just real world scenarios being played out, right? It's, it's Amazon has chosen one theory versus Google is a more centralized. And so it's uh, I love it, you know, like it's because there's pros and cons to both. And depending on which workloads I have. Yeah, my neighbor yeah. still has centralized IM in USC Swan, don't they? They do. Yeah. But you can, but uh, yeah. I, I was having suffering an AT&T outage earlier this week, uh, which was causing me problems to get to US East 1, and I just changed the URL to US West 2, and it worked. So, yes, it is. it does default to East, but there are ways around it if you know the magic handshake. So. But the quintessential uh, service that describes the benefit of the global services versus regional partitioning is when you look at Google's network. And yeah. you're on GCP and you get to build one network and have, I, have tons of projects which have isolated API uh, blast radiuses, but they can all be on the same network. But but when you have global services, you this is the other this is the other end of the sword. 
Yeah. I was really interesting blog about their big table service they use internally for a lot of things. And they, they started off with big tables for everybody. If anyone wanted one, they can have one. And they realized very quickly that it was just more efficient to have one big big table service, which everyone hmm. used. And that's, I mean, maybe they'll, maybe they'll back out of these types of architectural decisions. Interesting. Yeah, did either did any of you guys read the uh, Dear Google Cloud, Your Deprecation Policy is Killing You by Steve Yeg? Yes. yes no. that, was, that was a really good read. We should link to that. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for people at home to read on this, but we'll talk about this next week because you guys – it's actually a really interesting article um, that really highlights one of the main differences in the Google Cloud and how they think about services and platforms. And um, it, it was a big thing for me. I know I read through it and I was like, huh, that's a really interesting perspective. And it's something that you know Google has been kind of accused of for a while, which is that they're they're really a product company. They're not a services or platform company. And this is one of those areas where you know inter- inside Google where you can dictate all of your – all of your policies and how you deprecate software and all that, it's not a big deal to be a product-focused company. But when you're a platform company that people are building on, that's a problem. And so it's kind of interesting. Uh, Steve Yeg comes from Google. He used to work there before he's now gone on to do his own thing. Um, But it's really interesting. I do recommend reading that. And we'll talk about it next week on the show because you guys didn't have time to read the blog, and it's it's worth reading. Yeah, actually, the Big Table story came from from, uh, Steve Yeg. That's what kind of reminded me when you mentioned the Big Table thing because I did read that too. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, AWS, who has new heroes. Uh, their August 2020 batch of heroes has been announced. Of course, Amazon heroes are typically people who help the community in some way, either by contributing open source, training materials, uh, evangelism on Twitter and social media, those type of things. Uh, and they're typically either in the container space, uh, the serverless space, or the machine learning AI space, um, although I think there are some heroes that are more broad than that. But that's typically where they come from. Uh, and you know, th- they have two new heroes this time from Greece and Poland, uh, joining people from Australia, Japan, Korea, Israel, China, United States, and many more. But the most important one is from Australia, and it's a friend of the show, Ian McKay, uh, who has now been included in the batch of heroes between helping his clients. He loves a chance to build open source projects with a focus on AWS automation and tooling. And again, we talked about it when he was on the show a couple weeks ago. You like doing work for free. Apparently, Amazon wants to appreciate that by making him a hero. So thanks. Congratulations, Ian, if you're listening. Yeah, I mean, I'm I've I've always been sort of enamored about his projects and 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 the work that he does just because of you know they're very creative solutions to very customer centric problems. I mean, that's because he's a customer, and and it's great to see him recognized this way. Couldn't be more happier. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we've we talked to other heroes as well. You know, talked to Ben Kehoe on the the TCP Talk Show. Um, we're going to be talking to Forrest Brazil as well. Uh, very soon. And so, you know, we we talk to a lot of these heroes all the time, and it's always interesting how they contribute to the overall ecosystem and how important they are to Amazon's success, I think, in the space, which is really great. Well, I think it's important to also just do a shout out to Konstantinos Siaterlis of Athens, <laughs> Greece, just because I'm Greek. So, yes, he, yes. He gets a shout out too. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. 
AWS Firewall Manager now supports security groups on application load balancers and classic load balancers. Of course, AWS Firewall Manager uh, previously only supported EC2 instances and ENIs and the security groups attached to those, which made it pretty much worthless for anybody who's actually doing nesting of uh, security groups to ALBs and then to their EC2 instances. Uh, of course, Firewall Manager gives you all kinds of capabilities out of the box, including prepackaged audit rules uh, provided by the Firewall Manager or the ability to write your own audit rules, check for non-compliance. And you can define Firewall Manager policies to specify security groups with baseline set of inbound and outbound rules uh, that you want associated with each and every load balancer. So now you can kind of control things at a more global level with the Firewall Manager. Again, this ties into organizations in a big way and SCPs, uh, and this is a great capability. So Firewall Manager, I think, is finally growing up a little bit and getting what I always thought it should have from day one. Yeah, it's at least actually usable, right? Like when it was tied to an ENI or a secret, you know, or a single machine, it 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 confused me quite honestly because it's so an anti-pattern, you know. Like the the whole point of the host base ACLs that security groups provides is that I don't actually assign them for host. So it was like a feature built for the days of the classic EC2 before VPCs yeah. existed, <laughs> where that was yeah. actually a thing where we did that, where we out, we opened ports directly onto servers yeah. with uh, security groups. Uh, it was always a little bit weird to me, but yeah, I'm glad to see this now. Yeah, it's really neat. I'm hoping they they continue this pattern and and roll out other controls across organizations as well. Yeah, yeah. slowly but surely, organizations is finally getting what it needs to get uh, to be really the tool that we've always wanted. So, which is. Ability to manage global hundreds of plan, accounts right? from a centralized place, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's that it's that global control plane that yeah. we avoided by doing uh, regional isolation. True, but it's still very regionalized. Um, so you still have to create those rules in every region and, and declare them. Right. But yes. But you are starting to see some tools get more multi-region aware, right? Like CloudWatch uh, now can pull data in from other regions into a single dashboard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is really nice whenever I have to go check the SQSQs for a logging platform because I don't have to go to both regions anymore, <laughs> things like that. And it's uh, so regionally isolated, right? Because if yep. the region's failures, then you just don't get those metrics. Like, it's it's actually right. quite nice. I like still do separate receive. regions. Uh, I like this <sighs> in separate regions separately because it, it just it spreads out the bad news over a longer period of time. Oh, go <laughs> home, Grandpa. See, what? It's uh, <laughs> out the bad. I can only take so much bad news at once. I can only see the bad news in in the West. I don't know that it's bad in yeah. East or in Asia or everywhere else in the world. You know, that's a problem for different all of the alert emails to Jonathan. Do that. <laughs> all right, that explains a lot about Jonathan. I just learned in that statement. It's, no, that's why <laughs> the bad news always comes in small little bits because he's like, "Oh, it's it's messed up in this region." And I'm like, "Oh, that's really bad." What about the other region? He's like, "Uh, hold on a second. Yeah, it's bad in that one too." <laughs> one thing at a time. <laughs> one one crisis at a slowly time. and surely wins the race. That's yeah. can't argue with that. Indeed. Well, our next one is uh, API Gateway HTTP APIs have gotten some additional support for AWS App Config, EventBridge, Kinesis Data Streams, SQS, and Stuff Functions. Uh, with these new integrations, customers can easily create APIs and webhooks for their business logics hosted in these AWS services. Uh, previously, customers could only use HTTP APIs to create APIs that route requests to AWS Lambda functions and any HTTP. Uh, S backend through ALBs. Uh, this new release enables customers to d- build direct APIs that can be used to get configuration information from App Config, publish those events to EventBridge, ingest data through Kinesis Data Stream, send a message to SQS, or start a workflow step function. Uh, integration with other AWS services have been a popular feature in the REST API products, and they will see more in the future. I didn't know that you could target backend services other than Lambda, right? Like the, as far as like issuing an API request, 
um, and having the API gateway trigger a backend service. This seems a little bit more um, usable in that way, where it's more than just Lambda. Although you know you can do whatever you want with Lambda, you know, populating directly to a queue or populating, you know, triggering a step machine, uh, step function directly. Yeah, but now I don't have to take that that tax of a Lambda function mm-hmm. just to go execute something in EventBridge or something else. So I, I see why they did it. It eliminates a cost that I don't necessarily need to invoke, uh, which makes sense. It also and means that I won't be cleansing my data as it, like the, all the logic <laughs> I used to put in Lambda to make sure that I was doing the right thing. Nope, just send that right into the Kinesis stream. Fine. Yeah, I mean, again, evaluate your use case. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right, uh, that's the right choice necessarily. Yeah, it'll be but fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> What's in your Kinesis stream anyway? Who knows? Now I don't have to care <laughs> at all. <laughs> just put it on the pipe and someone hopefully subscribes to it. Otherwise, that, you know, your Kinesis stream just builds forever. It's okay. All right. Well, uh, AWS Controls for Kubernetes, or ACK for short, is a new tool that lets you define and use AWS service resources directly from Kubernetes. With ACK, you take advantage of AWS managed services for your Kubernetes apps without needing to define resources outside of the cluster or run services that provide supporting capabilities like databases or message queues within your cluster. Um, This allows you to set up things like databases, message queues, and object stores to operate your Kubernetes cluster. Uh, previously, you could do this, but it took a lot of hand-holding. It was not easily integrated. Now, everything is a native controller, so you get all of that capability out of the box. Uh, currently, this supports S3, Amazon SNS, SQS, DynamoDB, ECR, and AWS API Gateway, and they expect to add RDS and Elasticash already. It's in development, with many more to come, including EKS support and MSK uh, in the future, which is their managed Kafka service. Uh, also working on cross-account resource management and native application secrets integration. So I think this is really great overall. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is – I'm not a giant fan of Kubernetes, but the one thing that I really lust over in Kubernetes is the controller aspect. And so this really changes your deployment from having multiple areas of input, whether you're deploying resources in CloudFormation or Terraform, and then also deploying your containerized stack in Kubernetes. Kubernetes or Helm or however you're going to manage it, this really allows you to centralize it in one place. There's some caveats that I can immediately think of that you know would I'd be could be a little problematic in production, but I also think that this is removing the context shift of you know creating an SQS queue that your container is going to listen for. This is fantastic. Yeah, there's a couple of areas where they're actually uh, looking for some feedback still, particularly around destructive operations, as well as um, about adopting existing Amazon resources. So importing existing SQS, or whatever. Uh, and if you have feedback on those, or are curious how they're going to do that, uh, there is a email address in the press release that uh, you can contact to uh, provide that feedback. Because I think there are some rough edges they're trying to figure out right now as well. Yeah, controllers aren't stateful, so <laughs> that's a problem. What took so long? I sent my sin like a month ago. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to work that joke in. Yeah. Oh, I, I, failed. Oh, I failed almost as much as you. <laughs> <laughs> I took a bullet. Nice. Took a bullet for the team. Yeah. Well, yeah, you don't have lightning round to take those bullets. So. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a sure. pretty great name. I will. I will give that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, of all the names I've seen from recently, that one's, that one's one of the better ones. Unlike MSK, which they mentioned in this article, which makes me cringe every time I see it. it makes me think of Mystery Science uh, Theater 3000 every time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I see that. And we have been uh, sitting there heckling it, so it's kind of appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of appropriate. 
Uh, well, if you are a big fan of the PIOPS, or the provisioned IOPS as they're called, which were originally launched in 2012, uh, these are volumes that are great fits for your most IO-hungry and lane-sensitive applications, and they cost you an arm and a leg. Uh, but now they've been updated. Uh, of course, over the years, uh, they've done many, many upgrades to IOPS or PIOPS, uh, things like increasing the ratio of IOPS per gigabyte, uh, with the most recent occurring in August 2016, originally starting out in 2012 as 10 IOPS per gigabyte. Can you imagine those days? Whew, that's rough. Hmm. And now it's 50 IOPS per gigabyte. Uh, and in summary, the bigger volumes, the more IOPS you can provision to the upper bounds of 64,000 IOPS. Uh, they've also now increased the maximum number of IOPS for EBS volume multiple times as well. And now with the release of the IO2 volume type with two important benefits at the same price as the existing IO1, you now get uh, five nines of durability making them 2,000 times more reliable than a commodity disk drive, further reducing the possibility of storage volume failure and helping to improve the availability of your applications, as well as more IOPS with the increase to the IOPS per gigabyte ratio of 500 IOPS per gigabit uh, in, in G or what is that? Gigabit in, I don't know, gigabit in bytes per second? I don't know. I don't, really, I don't know what that acronym There's is. There's a web page I use for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, with this change, you get higher performance from your EBS volumes, and you can reduce or eliminate your, any over-provisioning that you might have done in the past to achieve the desired level of performance. Uh, the changes make to IO2 make it a great solution for SAP HANA workloads, MS SQL, or IBM DB2. Uh, you can create new or modify your existing IO1 uh, EBS volumes and move them to IO2. Uh, it does support everything that IO1 supports except for multi-attach. Uh, however, that is in the roadmap. Uh, which is probably why they didn't just make this IO2 available right away for everybody as part of just a new version of IO1 because that multi-attach uh, is out there now. Uh, again, this is pretty awesome. So basically, uh, free if you're already using IO1. Uh, no, pretty nice. but wait, it looks free. That's a really great press release. That's a wonderful spin. They've done that <laughs> whole thing. I, I would say that the, the, the advantage that, that IO2 gives us now is that if you need high IOPS, you don't need to provision excessively large disks just to get the IOPS that you need for the app. But you don't get IOPS. You just get to be able to spend more money on more IOPS if you need them. It may, it may save money for some people who, who couldn't get the IOPS they wanted without having large EBS volumes that they didn't need. But it also, it's also lets you spend a whole lot more money, you know, up to, was it? 64,000 IOPS. Yeah, spend more. But Sapana would like it, right? <laughs> Our friends at Pro- Proterra would, uh, would agree, I'm sure. I'm sure they would. You don't need such a large disk if you provision IO2 because you can you can specify more IOPS per gig than you were able to specify with IO1. Oh, I think GP2 is three IOPS per gig. Yeah, but in GP2, like the, the real the real limit there is not in in the IOPS because you get a big bucket of extra IOPS to use when you need to burst. The real limits in the fact that you can only get 250 megabytes a second of throughput regardless of the size of your volume, and yeah. that's burned us quite badly recently <laughs> yes Uh-oh. yes it has yeah so uh so i looked it up why we why ryan's memory failed him i used the google uh and they have a decent iops starting from 100 and going all the way to 16,000 iops depending on the gigabits uh, provisioned uh of course with that maximum throughput of 250 megabits per second comvault is data management done differently comvault knows how important your data is to your business enabling you to learn more about your data manage your data Move your data securely and efficiently and quickly recover your data to meet critical business needs. Available as a cloud-based software as a service solution, deployed on your existing on-premise virtualization environment or as an appliance-based offering, their simple and centralized web interface lets you synchronize your data between on-premise data centers and your cloud environments, keeping downtime due to failures at a minimum. 
With Commvault, you can translate your virtual workloads to a cloud provider automatically, greatly simplifying the move to the cloud or your disaster recovery solution to the cloud. Commvault supports over 40 different cloud vendors, giving you the ability to use the cloud that is right for your business. To learn how Commvault can help you manage your data differently, save money and reduce risk, head to www.thecloudpod.net slash Commvault to find out more and schedule your free trial of their SaaS offering. Well, I mentioned earlier GCP has announced some major changes to cloud logging this week. Uh, I was on one of the Google Cloud Slack channels that exists out in the world, and uh, someone was complaining about this change. So we'll, we'll talk about this. They apparently changed the log router uh, with new functionality in beta that impacted his production. So that's kind of a bummer. But uh, Google's cloud, uh, Google Cloud's goal with cloud logging has always been to make making logging simpler faster and more useful for their customers. That means making it easy to search and analyze logs as well as provide secure, compliant, and scalable log storage solutions. And so they're releasing several features for cloud logging, the first one being a logs bucket, uh, which is apparently for the challenge of providing contextualized logs and centralized logs uh, is not losing the granularity of those logs. And to solve this, log buckets are first-class log storage solutions, uh, and using log buckets allows you to centralize or subdivise your logs based on any need you have. Uh, I thought originally this was just like a blob object or like an S3 bucket, and apparently this is not. This is a really more like a prefix in your logs to give you more segmentation inside that bucket. The next one is log views uh, in alpha, which allows you to specify which logs users should have access to all using standard IAM controls because I like to make my logs even more complicated with IAM. And then uh, regionalized log storage, customized retention, and cloud logging router, which is the thing that that person mentioned to me was broken. Apparently, the new functions are in beta, but uh, to support log buckets, they have augmented the clog logging router to give you more control over where your logs go. Previously, there were different models to manage which logs went to to cloud logging versus other destinations, including BigQuery, Cloud Storage, and PubSub. Uh, And then, of course, the last feature is exploring and analyzing logs is now generally available with a new log viewer, histograms, field explorer, regular expressions, and logging dashboard, all available to you from Google Cloud Logging. You make the joke about the IAM controls, but the number one request that I've had in our internal logging and our day job has been, how do I hide these logs from the rest of our employees? So, <laughs> uh, it's People can't control necessarily the output of their logs. They can. They just don't, um, in my opinion. But, you know, it's not happening. And so, you know, if you're worried about passwords and you're worried about sensitive material, this is a great control. It's definitely a nuclear hammer, and I, you know, I don't like those in general, but it's an option. Mm. So this will be attractive to, to all the people who are using Elasticsearch less than version seven point nine now, which was only released a few days ago, mm. because there's a CVE being publicized for uh, all those previous versions, which allows somebody to escalate privileges. Basically, if somebody else had just recently made a query and had permissions to access uh, otherwise hidden data. The next person can also hit that cache and pull out their data that they shouldn't have done. So it's tough. Yeah. yeah. Logging is hard at scale. It <laughs> is. Learned. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up is synthetic data generation with Dataflow data generator flex templates. Um, so this is a problem that if you're trying to performance test or load test uh, something like a queue of some sort, um, it's very difficult to generate large amounts of data that you can then test th- for resiliency and for different capabilities of your performance of your queue. Uh, so Google is announcing the launch of a new Dataflow Flex template called Streaming Data Generator that is capable of publishing unlimited high-volume JSON messages to a Google Cloud PubSub topic. Uh, this solution lets you generate synthetic data at very high queries per second, as this is a challenging task. 
Uh, Google, having learned this is a very common need, which helps IT teams validate system resilience during evals and migrations to new platforms. Google decided to build a pipeline and tool to eliminate the heavy lifting and make synthetic data generation much, much easier. So I have had to deal with this in the past, uh, and this is a big pain. <laughs> uh, my solution was just spin up you know, 10,000 EC2 instances and run it. But uh, yeah, this is much better. Mm-hmm. The other solution is, is capturing existing customer queries and, and uh, sort of scrubbing them for sensitive information but then, and then just replaying those. But even then, if the customers don't test all the features or you know, hit all those things that you need to test when you do QA, it, it doesn't really help you. So this, this is really cool. I wonder if we can uh, subscribe to this from our AWS accounts. <laughs> can it send data to a Kinesis stream? That's the question. Yeah, we always see people who uh, can totally easily spin up a production-like environment to massive scale to do testing, but they don't necessarily have the test harness and or the load generation to, and and that's their bottleneck. And if you could make that easy to do, that's super cool. Well, and and the way you typically do that is you take a database and you scrub it. And the database that's scrubbed is fine to give you a good basic level, but if you actually want to simulate the load of your production system, it's impossible to do without some type of generator to make that traffic. So yep. I, I definitely see it as a common problem that people need solutions for. So that's pretty good. Well, uh, Google's Kubernetes engine, Dataplane V2, has increased security and visibility for containers, uh, leveraging the Extended Berkeley Packet Filter, or eBPF, uh, which is a new Linux networking paradigm that exposes programmable hooks to the network stack inside of a Linux kernel. The ability to enrich the kernel with user space information without jumping back and forth between user and kernel spaces enables context-aware operations on network packets at high, high speeds. Uh, to harness this power of service mesh and serverless demand of the Kubernetes later, uh, Google is releasing the Dataplane V2, an opinionated data plane that harnesses the power of eBPF and Cilium, which is an open-source project that makes the Linux kernel Kubernetes-aware using eBPF. Uh, this is available to you in beta, and the Cilium is an open-source project that has been designed on top of eBPF to address the new scalability, security, and visibility requirements of container workloads. Now, right now, this is very early days for this technology, but I see this being a big solution to a lot of problems for security teams who want to be able to do full packet inspection, to be able to really look at data at high performance inside of a Kubernetes cluster, which is really difficult to do uh, currently without you either offloading all of your traffic off the cluster to an appliance of some sort or trying to inject it into other containers uh, this does simplify a big story that uh, many security teams need and want. True, but I still hate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have nothing to dispute that. It's just it's it's one of those things where it's 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 still in line, and so therefore, like this is going to be a this is going to be a little bit more of a problem for for you know reliability and latency and. I get that we need, you know, context aware solutions for these things, but it's also like I'm not sure that this because it's in line is the right solution. This scares me, quite honestly. I think we will wait uh for a while to see what the answer is <laughs> and what solutions people come out with these and mm-hmm. what the actual adoption of these technologies is. But I do suspect that we'll see, you know, certain network vendors in the security space start offering solutions uh, that work with us. So mm-hmm. we'll see. The- And the scary thing is different uh, regulatory bodies see that this capability is available and require it for all workloads. Yep. Well, what's the other option if it's not in line? Mirroring. I mean, that, I mean that's in line is always you, you're doing analysis in line. Um, and so that it's just the choice between are you being 
reactive or proactive. And so the, 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 the proactive camp is like it has to be in line. We need to be able to analyze this and stop it, right? You know, having those hooks into the user space and knowing when something is being tripped, you know, and being able to stop that in its tracks or being able to forensically evidence it. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a bit of a philosophy thing, in my opinion, like, um, and there's trade-offs, you know, like I would love to stop all bad actors, but not necessarily the cost of slowing down everything. I wonder if there's like a, a hybrid solution where you could, you could mirror the traffic. You could, in parallel, work on the API call and also an- analyze the data. And then before the API gets to return its data, it checks to see, well, what was, what was the result of the analysis that you did in parallel? Am I, am I safe to send the data back? Yeah. That'd be neat. That would be neat. Uh, that's, uh, I haven't seen any solutions like that, but mainly because you don't have any time to do that analysis. Yeah, I'm going to write it on my list of things I'll never get around to, but I will take credit for in, in six months' time when somebody else does it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had that idea. Yep. Totally did. Totally did. All right. Well, if you are using the sole tenant nodes in general in Google, uh, I have a new feature for you, which is the new CPU overcommit feature. Uh, this is their Google's commitment to provide the most enterprise-friendly, intelligent, and cost-effective options for running your workload in the cloud. With the CPU overcommit, you can over-provision your dedicated host virtual CPU resource by up to two times. Uh, CPU overcommit automatically reallocates virtual CPUs across your sole tenant nodes from idle VM instances to VM instances that need additional resources. Uh, this allows you to intelligently pool CPU cycles to reduce compute requirements when running enterprise workloads on dedicated hardware. Uh, there are several use cases that Google says this will help you out with, one being running cost-effective virtual desktops in the cloud, uh, improving your host utilization and helping to reduce infrastructure costs, and, of course, reducing your licensing costs. Uh, of course, uh, it doesn't reduce all your costs, as Google would like to charge you a 25% premium charge uh, for the CPU <gasps> overcommit on sole tenant nodes. So you aren't paying SQL Server, but you are paying Google for the right to overcommit your own hardware, 25% premium charge. You're welcome. Awesome. Such an Oracle play, though, because they're the only cloud provider I know that lets you rent one-eighth of a CPU for a VM. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you're only going to use less than that. So on one on one hand, I get it, but you know, yeah. it's it's a little rough. I mean, it's no different than the, the T2 or T3 instances that I'm sure those are overcommitted on the on the hardware side, but they have additional capacity so that you can burst. Yeah, but still, I mean, those there's no premium for those things. I, I just find this a funny a funny thing. Like you know, you could just right size your instances. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you have these ins- but you have these instances that have to be a certain size for when they're being used. But then eighty percent of the time they're idle, and even if you turn them on and shut them off and all that stuff, there's still you look at the average CPU utilization on these things, and it's pretty low, even though the peaks are using one hundred percent of what's available. Um, Over committing is how we've how we did it before the cloud existed, and then we sort of lost that capability when we moved mm-hmm. to the cloud. Yeah, I mean, and VMware, that was, that's how VMware saved you millions of dollars on your hardware because you were able to overcommit your boxes that were doing, you know, 2 to 3% CPU utilization 99% of the yeah. time. Um, and I, I don't, I'm and certain all the hyperscalers are selling us that overcommitment right now. You know, like, there's no way. Oh, that, I'm sure, at some level, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think, I think this is that, you know, the, the reason why you kind of have to have this is because Google doesn't have the options of instance types for you. Like, they only have so many instance types that exist. And so if you're going sole tenant, uh, because of compliance reasons, you kind of really are screwed because it's a big box. It's not a small server where, at least on the Amazon space, you know, you can buy a smaller box as a sole tenant. You have more capabilities. 
Um, I mean, it's a plus, but then that twenty five percent premium charge that's just that's a killer to me. Like I don't that's know why you're doing that. That's a killer. If that high. didn't exist, I would be, I'd be all about this all, feature. Yeah. I would be reevaluating so many different cloud workloads right now and saying you might belong on Google specifically just for this one feature. You got to wonder so what the rationale is. is that, what's, the, what's the rationale for twenty five percent? Are they actually? holding back 25% of the hardware just in case they need it for some reason so that so you don't lose performance with the overcommit? It's kind of like a, you're well, overcommitted I mean, but not, not, not so much. It's the, not a capacity hold. It's just a, you're basically paying for a node that you've enabled overcommit on. You're paying 1.25, you know, 125% of the normal price to use that, to have the ability to overcommit and have less capacity available to you. Does, so does you're, basically, you're basically taking two boxes and you're combining into one box. So it, from their perspective, you're still getting a savings of 75% because you're not paying for two boxes. No, but you're, but still, you're still using more network and you're still using more block storage sure. bandwidth and all those other things. So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Right, you're yeah. putting a load on all the other. You're putting a higher load on all the other services, which yeah, are especially that metadata yeah. service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah well, it uh, all goes to fun changing the metadata, <laughs> evolving the metadata service. Exactly. Well, uh, up next at Google Next uh, was a bunch of stuff around app modernization and making your devs uh, more productive. So we have a bunch of stuff around this. The first one up is, of course, Google making your application development and delivery easier. Uh, they're releasing new additions to their app development and delivery platform to help developers, operators, and security professionals deliver better quality software to production faster. Uh, these new features include uh, integration of Cloud Run, their fully managed container platform, directly into Cloud IDE, uh, and support for that in IntelliJ and VS Code, or Visual Studio Code for short. Uh, extensive support for fast feedback as part of the local development loop. Uh, cloud Code includes a new Cloud Run emulator for VS Code and IntelliJ that runs your local machine to quickly validate changes, thereby taking any of the toil of auditing on and redeploying the changes. So not only can you get advantage of the cloud version of Cloud Run, but you can also get a local development version of it too. And then the third feature is they've enabled support for Google Cloud build packs in Cloud Code. Uh, developers can focus on translating business requirements into code, not working on how to containerize that code. Google, Google Cloud Build Packs pull together all the dependencies and frameworks run your app without a Docker file. Uh, then Cloud Build Packs are supported on GKE, Cloud Run, and Anthos, uh, as, they, as well as they have now announced the workflows in beta to help you integrate custom actions, Google APIs, and third-party APIs through workflows, uh, which are serverless, and a new artifact registry in beta uh, to allow you to support all your Maven and NPM packages along with Docker images. And Cloud Run also now supports traffic splitting and gradual rollouts. So lots of good tools there. How do you feel about that build packs, though, Ryan? Well, this is how I know that I'm well on my way in the, the progression from an operations SRE engineer to straight developer of cloud platform uh, is that, you know, I love this stuff. Like, it's so easy to use. It's nice. But, I mean, <laughs> there's a deep start, you know, part of my brain. It's like, oh, I don't think that's good in production. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's... It's, you know, I, there's pros and cons to both. You want that, you, know, you want less context shifting. You want the ability to develop without interruption and be able to develop these things. But then there's also running these things in, you know, in a safe and compliant manner, which is still near and dear to my heart. And, you know, it's, it's hard to balance those two. And so while I really like these things from a developer perspective, I also think that it's a little bit tricky for, um, larger organizations or, or more secure or, you know, like financial industry to, to meet their compliance controls with these types of things. So, yep. also I mean, how do you feel about Elastic Beanstalk then? Do you really like that? 
Uh, you're just calling me out now at this point, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> again, it's the it's the dichotomy, right? That the developer side of me is like, this is great. I don't have to do anything. Click. Um, but then there's the you know the pragmatic side of me who has to like support this you know similar apps in in production. I'm like, oh no, 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 not this. So, yeah, but Elastic I'm, Beanstalk is is like I mean, there's Heroku, but there isn't really an open source thing that does what Elasticsearch does. But why why replace the Docker file, which you can Google for years now and get tons of help on. Developers know it and love it. Why replace it with a proprietary thing? And it's, it goes against, um, it, it makes multi-cloud more difficult. It makes it harder to, to hire um, software engineers who, who are familiar with this technology. It's, it seems like it'd be a weird step to try and get more adoption of a platform. Well, one way, it locks you into the Google Cloud platform. You can't be completely cloud agnostic all the time because then people can just move around all the time where if I get you on cloud build backpacks that only work on GKE or cloud runner Anthos, now I've got you locked in. Mm. Vendor locking. There you have it. Yep. There you go. (laughs) I mean, I was thinking it was kind of interesting play against OpenShift, um, you know, and then kind of gives you that more flexibility of a container like cloud run without the overhead of a cloud run type platform in play. Um, I think it's interesting. I agree with kind of Ryan's feeling like, my developer side says, yes, this is awesome. And then my other side of it says, yeah, I want a Docker file. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the developers and, and who knows, are going to ask for it. And the ops guys are going to say, nope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and maybe maybe it does produce a Docker file somewhere. It just it doesn't, isn't visible to the dev team. And so maybe I get best of both worlds. I don't know. Potentially, but usually these IDE plugins don't, right? Like there's no real interaction for the the operation side of the business. These are, I think, in my opinion, these are very largely tailored towards, you know, developers who are pushing straight to production. And so trying to get it done as fast as possible. And there's, you know, there's value in that, but there's also risk in that. You know, so I like it and I don't like it. Well, if you didn't like that, I don't know about how you're going to come up with this next one. <laughs> but uh, Google has uh, basically put a modernization program around all of the Googleliness with the Google Cloud App Modernization Program, well named CAMP, is the acronym Thanks. of this one. I hate it. <laughs> Google CAMP is based on our experience of driving, uh, or their experience of driving application delivery at speed and scale. Examples of the scale include 12 million builds and running 650 million tests daily, along with processing 2.5 exabytes of log every month and parsing over 14 quadrillion monitoring metrics. Uh, App modernization is about forging a path forward, but can be challenging for large organizations. Uh, Common hurdles revolve around maintaining visibility and control across disparate on-prem, hybrid, and cloud environments, often resulting in disjointed developer experiences. The Google Camp addresses many of these common challenges in the following ways, thereby helping larger enterprises safely modernize their apps. Uh, this is based on research from the Does uh, organization, which is the DevOps organization they bought a few years ago, which uh, surveyed and basically built a bunch of programs around this. So the first one is a data-driven assessment and benchmarking. Uh, this, unlike a one-size-fits-all maturity mo- model, the Google Camp assessment is tailored to your organization, your processes, and your teams. Uh, so you can benchmark yourself against other lines of businesses in your company, the overall IT industry, or elite performers within your own industry. Uh, next, the assessment shows you where your bottlenecks are and how to make the biggest and most impactful investments quickly. Uh, and as a nice getting started before you engage Google, they include a quick check assessment available uh, if you're willing to give you them your contact information for a salesperson to hound you relentlessly. Uh, Google Cloud also leverages existing GCP product offerings to help you build, run, secure, and manage legacy and net new applications. Uh, Google Cloud has the end-to-end tooling developed from the ground up to support modern cloud-native principles. As course, and the third thing they bring to the table is proven practices, solutions, and recommendations. 
Uh, camp brings together a tailored set of technical processes, measurement, and cultural practices, along with app modernization solutions and recommendations based on years of Dora's scientific research, as long as along with Google's uh, own feelings and internal experiences. So there you go. What do you guys say about Camp? I'm I'm just amazed that Google is such a good place that those organizations only recommend Google solutions to all these problems. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean. I mean, key, the key to all good success is a really large metadata service that leverages blob storage to the yeah. back end. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is an interesting uh, perversion of the Dora research, in my opinion. Uh, you know, Google's not the only way to do a lot of these things. You know, I think the, the risk of a, you know, one-size-fits-all maturity model is there, but, you know, most companies have barely even started to cross any of the one-size-fits-all maturity model today. Uh, to then tell them, oh, you don't need that model. You just need to go with your own, you know, with the Google tool set and the Google, the Google assessment, I think, is a risk for a lot of enterprises. But there's companies out there like McKesson and such who have gone all in on the Google thing and feel this is the right answer for their businesses. So, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, – I'm maybe in the minority on this feeling, but I, I definitely feel like Google isn't always the right answer. No, yeah. at least they didn't call it uh, Google's well-architected uh, resource. Well, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think you'll find that there are businesses who have elected that position, but they're few and far between, and most of them have a other business relationship with Google. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of customers taking this journey, Peter. How much do you see Google in the mix versus Azure and AWS? Is that is that percentage changing over time, or is it still pretty constant with where it's been in the last few years? No, it's, you know, I mean, when they started from zero, it had nowhere to go but up. And just because we've been in this since like 2008, where there was one platform and only one platform. So um, from our ask, you know, from our perspective, uh, Azure and GCP can only trend up over time. Uh, and they're definitely trending up. Uh, but, yeah, I don't see the we don't we don't see the 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 floodgates opening for Google. We see the, you know, the the companies who have specific workloads that really fit really well on the Google platform and leverage their tools um their big data tools really well and and but those companies also have usually aws and or azure footprints as well so you know the all-in the all-in strategy just we don't see that often we see bigger companies not trying to do the uh you know the multi-cloud where they could port workloads back and forth but Realizing that they're going to have to support all of them uh, and put workloads that fit best on each platform, uh, they're onto those platforms, which means they're going to have to support them. Which means they're going to have to secure them. They're going to have to integrate them. It is the future. I think that that's. I I don't. I think there's a yeah. There's a giant fallacy of the multi-cloud scenario where you're moving workloads across all the clouds. Yeah, I think it's much more along what you just said, which is like I have this over here and I have this over here, and there's you have to sort of curate and take care of all of it. Yeah, you don't use Oracle. Yeah, you don't use Oracle for instance, right? You don't use Oracle database for all of your database needs because you had because that was the first um, that was the first database you bought. You picked the right. data platform for your right workload. And I think we're going to do the same thing with cloud and it's getting easier and easier to do so. 
uh, I can't imagine. I, I just see that moving uh, and then, you know, just continuing in that direction. And based on who's got the best platform, that company will win the bulk of the workloads at each and every customer. But I don't think that customers will have to choose one platform and go all in on that platform. I wonder if there will ever come a point, though, where there's been so much cloud adoption that the only way to grow is going to be to allow your services like SageMaker or, or like any of Google's um, AI tools to run in other people's clouds. I mean, it's already started. Start license- yeah, I mean, that with Anthos potentially, yeah. We start licensing those services to run on somebody else's hardware or maybe even in your own data center because I, I wouldn't want to manage uh, security and governance of three separate cloud providers. If, if that was my choice, I'd, I'd just, you know, run back to the data center and, and buy the services from those people where I can manage that footprint myself. And, and I think the risk you run into in that multi-cloud story is that, you know, you you have experts who understand AWS or GCP or Azure. Uh, and if you don't have the right expertise, are they going to make the right choice for that each individual cloud? They're so nuanced in how they approach these implementations. And you have to know some of these things or you have to have a partner like Foghorn to help you get there. Um, it's a risk. And I think, you know, the more clouds you bring into the mix, it's probably going to be a situation where it's costing you millions of dollars in compliance and security tooling and frameworking just to get it to be as secure as if you went with one cloud. So I, yeah, we're definitely in an interesting place right now where you know, multi-cloud is definitely the buzzword and all that. But the companies have done the maturity model and kind of looked at it, I think, have realized that there's, you know, there's reasons to do it if it makes sense. But a lot of reasons don't make any value uh, prop to them. Yeah, and that, I think that's going to be the right. The you look at these, you look at the two things that the hyperscalers are doing. One is create these differentiated services that you can only get on their cloud, and they're dumping tons of money in development of those services, pretty much for free. Because if you look at how much you're paying for a lot of those, you're paying just a slight markup over what you would be paying if you ran it yourself on EC2 and wrote your own software. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so that's that's the sort of the lock-in area. But then the other end will be. You know, how easy do we make it for companies to onboard themselves to our platform to start using us? And maybe they'll make as many inroads there to where um, the things you mentioned, you know, the the compliance, um, uh, the security, et cetera. It becomes so easy to onboard a new one of these hyperscalers that it's a no brainer for every, you know, 500 million to billion dollar uh, revenue type enterprise to, by default, just onboard all three, make all those services available to their business units. About the markup, though, I mean, look at AWS, and I expect to look at Google as well. And the reason they built the services they did was not for AWS. The majority of those things were built to support the retail industry or the search industry or the data analytics industry, which they monetize in a different way. And so by by having this other outlet, by having a, a cloud outlet, like AWS or GCP, where they can also sell those things for a slight markup, plus they're selling compute time at a markup. It gives them it's just it's just extra um, extra revenue, it's just extra margin on the service. And the margin's huge. I mean, look at Amazon had to split theirs out, and I don't know what it is right now, but last time we I paid attention to it, their net income on that business was twenty four percent, something like that, which means their gross margins are really really high, and you know they're we're all sold on the fact that it's pretty much cheaper to do it with them. And we can easily, I mean, right, right there, you're looking at, you know, 10%, 12%, 
costs can be taken out if we have better competition. And that includes all the R&D they're spending on building all this software that we pretty much get for free. It's an incredible shift we're seeing right now. Yeah, it is really interesting. Uh, Well, let's move on to our next story, uh, which is Anthos is rising. Sort of like the Empire in Star Wars, rising back up to take you down. Uh, They released several new features for you this week. uh, So the one I really wanted, which was the price cut, uh, wasn't one of them. So darn. Uh, But the first feature uh, is the hybrid AI capabilities are coming to Anthos, uh, designed to let you use their differentiated AI technologies wherever your workloads reside. By bringing AI on-premise, you can now run your AI workloads near your data, all while keeping them safe. In addition, hybrid AI simplifies the development process by providing easy access to best-in-class AI tech on-prem. The first service available for this is speech-to-text, which I don't think was necessarily the first one I would have chosen, but okay. Uh, And this is available to you via the cloud marketplace if you have Anthos. Uh, the second one is uh, money customers are choosing Anthos for its service-first approach versus infrastructure-first approach. Uh, Anthos lets you automate these services, allowing you to proactively monitor and catch issues earlier. And it does so with declarative policies that treat configuration as data so you can minimize manual errors while maintaining your desired state, a config state. Uh, to further enhance this capability, they're announcing the Anthos Attached Clusters, which lets you manage any Kubernetes cluster with the Anthos control plane, including centralized management for config and service mesh capabilities, as well as Anthos Bare Metal. Uh, so this means that it can connect to an e- uh, Kubernetes cluster running on AWS. It can connect to one on Azure, connect to one on on-prem, and be an Anthos-attached cluster managed by Anthos, uh, which is very interesting. I'll pause there before I go into the next exciting ones because I think Ryan's face, uh, his jaw just fell on the floor. So Yeah. I mean, this is this is a... I, I still can't argue or, or justify the price of Anthos, but this is a huge dagger in, in the sense of there are a ton of Kubernetes, existing Kubernetes workloads that now you can plug into the existing you know, cloud infrastructure and commands that you have. Uh, this, is, this is a huge win for Google. This is awesome. It's too bad they don't just make it free. Or or just reduce the price a little bit. I don't need I don't just, need a lot of discount. Just some, please. Just enough to let me play with it. That's all I want. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't want the, I don't want the twelve month commitment. That's a big thing. When I said license that software for Chrome for on-prem, I didn't mean for ten thousand dollars a month extra. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, other Anthos features uh, released this week: Anthos Identity Services, uh, which lets you extend your existing identity solutions to seamlessly work with Anthos, uh, with support for Open ID today and future. Uh, authentication models coming very soon. Uh, Anthos Security Blueprints get you best practices in a templated format, making it easy for you to quickly adopt best practices like auditing and monitoring policy enforcement and enforcing locality restrictions. And then migrating to Anthos has been never been easier with a new tooling, including a new CRD-based API to integrate with your custom processes and tooling. This enables several features, including support for converting VMs running on-prem and keeping them there. Uh, support for Windows containers and integration into the Google Cloud Console Web Admin UI, which making it easier to monitor ongoing migrations for perform to perform multiple migrations at once. So there you go. Big week for Anthos. This is what I think of when I think about standing up Kubernetes as a service for you know not only my day job but you know as a business otherwise. And so Google's doing it right. This is plugging into those third party providers for identity, which is a giant hole for access to the Kubernetes API. The, the security best practices and blueprints is just an ability to sort of measure your deployments and your input into these things against these best practices, which are, um, you know, for a lot of development communities, brand new. And so this is 
allowing centralized teams to sort of at least do a comparison between two things and one of them being best practice. So this is, you know, like I, I, I do see Google making the play for, uh, for how they take over here, as, especially for on-prem workloads. Yeah, I, I definitely see they're a pretty aggressive tactic to take on all the Kubernetes that's out there and manage it for you. And if that makes it simpler for you to manage and deal with, then that's what they want to do. And that gets you into the on-ramp into the Google Cloud, which is what they really want at the end of the day. So it's well done. I, I applaud their efforts, and I think they're on the right track for many ways, which is why you know, I, I still feel Amazon and Azure have a long way to go to get their Kubernetes stuff in the right place. I think Google's been focused a lot on features to enable development, but these this is really a feature for enabling production use in, in, in a safe and uh, sensible way. So maybe this is maybe this is the start of them maturing slightly, and um, and that's pretty good. Yeah, I see this as direct competition to VMware's Project Pacific. You know, mm-hmm. trying to make the management of these things kind of operable mm-hmm. in a in a business sense. Well, and you know, really, other than VMware, who's the big player to go with on prem for Kubernetes? And you know, there's Rancher out there, and there's others, but at the end of the day, you know, it, it's really Anthos is kind of the answer if you want something more managed on premise. And I, you know, I think that's the mistake that EKS is making. I think it's a mistake Azure has sort of made, but they have at least some options with Azure Stack available to you. Um, but you know, I, I, Amazon, you got to get on this multi-cloud thing and, and really embrace hybrid. I think. I think it's. The biggest Achilles heel they have, and they feel as being the leader in the space, they don't have to do this. And I'm like, I think you're wrong. I think you're going to kill yourself by not doing that. I can envision a uh, uh, hotel. I kind of agree. I think this is a mistake, but I also feel that if you're the leader in the market, you know, this isn't something you want to encourage. But you know, like, and I always have felt that their Kubernetes response has always been sort of, you know, from behind in a lot of sense. I mean, the fact that they're still not releasing EKS fast enough, I mean, is a perfect example of the problem with that. And, and then, you know, they have ECS. ECS, you know, I adopted it. I liked it a lot. I, I think it's really great. But, you know, it never went on-prem, never went multi-cloud, never gave me any options. And it's, it's, a, it's a serviceable alternative to Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. But until it's enabled to be that, I can't use it in those models other than on AWS, which is a limitation. Mm-hmm. Will we have an open-source project that just copies the... Anthos uh, feature set and threatens that as far as a proprietary product? Well, I mean, so I just saw this week that Rancher took their lightweight container uh, orchestration, I think they call it K3T or something like that. They just donated that to CNCF. So there are activities happening in CNCF trying to make management of of clusters across providers more open source and more available, but you know, Anthos right now is in the lead. So, I mean, it, it is the leader in that space right now. Business idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would be very easy to compete with the, uh, the billions of dollars that Google has to invest in doing something like that. Oh, you pessimist. Yeah, that's what we everybody says. Yeah, but nobody's that's done it yet. Chipness has been around mm-hmm. for a long time and nobody's done it yet. Nobody's built a really easy to use because just making system. Kubernetes. Yeah, that's not for lack of trying, though. No. Like, there's yeah. been a lot of companies who have tried to make the open source, easy to use version, and it's just not that easy. I mean, there's a ton of projects that have tried and failed, and others that have gotten close, but it, it's so complicated. And, and the people who 
have probably the experience running Kubernetes at scale who could actually build that product too busy trying to keep their Kubernetes cluster up and running. <laughs> so it's you – know, there's a lot to do there. Well, the thing is well, you, you, you build an open source project around it and all of a sudden you realize that actually there's nothing in the market that, that's a paid solution which is as good as what you're about to build. And so you, you monetize it. At least you have a go at doing that. It's, it's, until there's some really good paid-for products, I don't think the open source community will come through with an alternative. I think that's probably true. I also think that the you know the the biggest rough part about management of Kubernetes is the edges, right? So it's how you integrate with everything else, and I think that's where everyone sort of failed because it's hard to monetize a product that's a one fit you know solution that's easy to scale. It's sort of like you no, know, I can I can probably build a strong business on consulting and how to make Kubernetes work in your specific end case, but I'm not sure I could do it as a product. Well, I you know I get approached by people all the time who have new Kubernetes offerings and want to talk to me about how I can use it in my day job. You know, and you know I've seen probably a handful of de- demos now. They all are kind of the same. No one's got anything that's magical that makes me say, you know, you guys have the right strategy that makes you differentiated enough from what Anthos or anybody else is doing. It's it's just making what's currently there easier. It's not improving what's currently there, and that's I think the challenge. Mm-hmm. Let's move up to uh, Redmond and uh, our friends at Microsoft, uh, who woke up this week. They have some stuff uh, hey. for a change, which is great, and some interesting stuff even. So that's that's even better. Uh, the first one up is not so interesting, but uh, so good. <laughs> the first one is uh, release of the new Azure CDN capability. This allows you to use multiple origins with the same CDN endpoint using the Azure portal and Azure CDN APIs to provide a simple, fault-tolerant method of load balancing between origins. Uh, Azure CDN customers can establish global redundancy and eliminate downtime by designing multiple origins with an Azure CDN endpoint. Uh, and with support for multiple origins based on path and geolocation, you can route the traffic to the closest origin of the user. So thank you for getting feature parity with everyone else. I appreciate that. What are you talking about? That's super interesting. Now now my one server goes down and I can still do stuff. Yay. You're right. It's not interesting. Damn it. I solved that three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you, you sure did. Two servers, two servers, yep. also. Yeah, two regions, two databases. <laughs> replicated. Uh, the next one is uh, some new cost optimization enhancements for you in Azure Advisor, which apparently means that people complain about Azure bills. I've yet to meet them. I'd like to meet them. If you have an Azure bill you're complaining about and you're unhappy about, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, just because this is not something you hear a lot about Azure. You hear it all the time about AWS and GCP. Uh, you know, you don't really hear it there either. But if you have it on Azure... Uh, there's new tools for you. Well, the first one is new right size recommendations for MariaDB, MySQL, and PostgreSQL. Uh, new reserved instance recommendations are now available to you, and data for CPU, memory, and network utilization data for P95 uh, over day- seven days is now available to you. Uh, so there you go. Uh, great capabilities. If you're trying to save that money that you apparently are unhappy about spending. This isn't about saving money. This is about this is a sales checklist. This this is when you pick a when you pick a cloud provider, you make sure you ask them if they have cost optimization tools, if they have well architected, if they have all these other different things and now they're just filling in these easy gaps. Nobody's complaining about the costs because they give so many credits away. Well and and they also, you know, you're capped, right? So the the reason why people complain about costs in AWS is it's unpredictable. And that it catches finance people by surprise. And you know what a finance person hates is unpredictable costs or unknown, you know, being unaware of a cost is going to hit them. In Azure, I don't have that problem because I'm capped. I have a cap for a certain level. And if I want to go above that, I have to go through a procurement process. Same thing with GCP in many ways. So that's you basically have protected yourself from that risk by basically committing to a contract that included a ton of credits 
or a, a yeah. darn lot of credits, so you can edit that later. Uh, but you know, <laughs> it's just basically there, uh, you know, available for you in the Azure space. So I, I agree with you. I think it is uh, tied to credits and this engagement you have with Microsoft that makes it not a big problem for you. Yeah. And there's cost optimization reverses the reverses the fault, right? Like I I don't want to argue that we shouldn't have cost optimization recommendations, but when you provide that up front, who's the onus of responsibility on? Like it's the people spending the money, which it's always been, but it's, you know, you're just demonstrating that. So you're just like, you're going to complain about cost here. We've provided you 67 ways where you can save money. Which ones have you adopted? It's harder, a harder argument. So it's, I think it's good. I think that needs to happen. I think, you know, more, more visibility into spend is good for all of the cloud providers. But it also does the, the double duty of putting it back on your responsibility, which is generally my responsibility, which is unfortunate. I don't think it's, yeah. think it's entirely fair to say that AWS doesn't have uh, you know, billing caps. You can put um, you can put a cap on spend in accounts now. That's not there by default. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. you're completely right. They have caps. But, uh, but what do you do, though, if you're in a production account and you need to auto scale up because you have an expensive load one in, day? In the, world, you, exactly, yeah, in, a, in the Azure world, in the Azure world, you have a downtime. That's yeah, what happens. Yeah. Choose your My poison. personal account has a cap. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but it doesn't, you know, well, it runs my website. Who cares? Indeed. Well, uh, in an interesting blog article, Microsoft makes a case for why you should be using Azure Database for Postgres. Uh, I'm serious, guys. This is a real blog post. <laughs> Uh, some of there are many, many reasons for why you should be going with Postgres on Azure. Uh, 100% open source built on the community edition for Postgres with open extension support so you can leverage valuable Postgres SQL features including JSON, geospatial support, and rich indexing. Uh, Microsoft is committed to nurturing a culture of contributing to open source Postgres, and they have welcomed Postgres committers to the team, which means they hired them away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is fully managed for you. It's protected by threat protection, and it supports high-performance horizontal scaling with Citus. Uh, and if you're curious to watch these picks continue to fly, they're turning this into a fantastic blog series you can now follow uh, with Azure Database for Postgres SQL blog. Uh, and you can check in on all the great Postgres innovations that Microsoft's going to bring to the world uh, as they compete with their own product. That they make a lot of I money. I love off it. Of, so yeah. be fantastic. How awesome is that? It's, it's still awesome despite how it's also funny. Like, I think that this is the kinder, gentler Microsoft in full effect. I love it. You know, like I think that embracing open source, embracing Unix technologies, I think has done them a world of favors. And this is just a continuation on that. But yeah, it is sort of this double edge. There's part of the business that's like, wait, what? What are we doing? No. <laughs> I, think well, that's just, a, I think they're just trolling That's how Oracle. the business pops up occasionally. Oh, I'm sure they are. It's like, oh, we want TikTok. Oh, no, Oracle wants TikTok. Oh, well, see this press release. I see that press release and raise you, you, you telling people to stop buying your, your expensive database. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, apparently, Microsoft is also pretty jealous of those Graviton processors over at uh, across the lake, Washington, at, at Amazon headquarters. Uh, so they have announced a joint innovation lab partnership with TSMC, uh, which is one of the leader providers of silicon fabrication, to serve as a collaboration platform to best integrate cloud and EDA innovations and help provide the semiconductor industry with the performance and cost effectiveness to accelerate time to market and optimize development costs to unleash product innovations. Uh, through their deep partnership, they have worked closely to implement an Azure-based architecture for TSMC's virtual design environment, refine cloud resource selection, and storage architecture for specific workloads. Uh, and this is all available to you, uh, not available to us, but available to them to now build the next generation of VMs uh, for Azure Cloud and a cloud-optimized EDA solution to fully utilize the parallelism of EDA. 
Uh, there's a quote here from Dr. Cliff Hugh, Senior Vice President of Technology Development at TSMC. Nurturing ecosystem collaboration has been the core of TSMC Open Innovation Platform, and this joint innovation lab with Microsoft is one big step forward, elevating cross-industry partnerships to the next level. TSMC has been one of the earliest drivers of cloud to speed up design and enable it for customers since 2018. And through our collaboration with Cloud Alliance members, we can lower entry barriers of cloud adoption for our common customers and help customers conduct IC design securely in the cloud and achieve faster time to market. Microsoft has been a great partner, and its Silicon on Azure team shares a similar vision with us. Sell your Intel stock now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, going to be interesting to see what happens there. They're all looking good, that's for sure. This is the last of the, the major hyperscalers to make this move, right? Mm-hmm. It's, between, makes, I, between AMD and ARM now, it's, and, and the massive move to, towards GPUs for, for processing power, I think mm-hmm. Intel is spiraling the drain. Yeah, well, I think the Apple announcement is also, you know, Apple, Apple Silicon. Well, that's the um, biggest hit. That's sure. the biggest hit to them, I think, yeah. from that side. Because if they can make it happen and they can get the emulators in place to emulate enough x86 for a few years, uh, they'll be in, in pretty bad shape, I think. So we yeah. will see. They got to, they've got to get to 7 nanometers, man. They're just tell screwing themselves on this one. You know, mm-hmm. a, you know AMD is now at 7 nanometers. Talking about going to 5 nanometers. Uh, I think AMD... You know, is beating them in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. uh, and they, apparently there's an article I saw this week where they're going to try to go after the Xeon margin at Intel, which is actually how they make most of the revenue. So it's 10 percent of the entire volume of chip sales is uh, Xeon, wow. but it's 30 percent of the revenue uh, at Intel. So if uh, AMD can actually get their thread rippers into more and more servers and you know, really attack that Xeon market, uh, that's that's bad news for in- Intel, I think. Yeah, so, AMD, yeah. AMD don't have any uh, multi CPU. Systems yet today. I think it's only Intel Xeons that do multi CPU. Well, that's that's where they're apparently heading right now with the next generation of the Threadrippers and that to really make that multi CPU. I I'm sure I'll cry for Intel someday, but not today. <laughs> nah, nah. Maybe the logo Intel inside. Maybe I'll cry for that. Good <laughs> that, was, that was part of the beginning of the spiral, right? Intel Inside is when they decided they needed to be a brand and not just make the best chips. Mm-hmm. Yep. Alienated their OEM partners. Never good. Mm. All right. Well, Peter, take us to Lightning Round where we alienate all of our cloud partners. <laughs> Speaking of alienating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, first, let's just uh, mention that our wonderful partner, Podreacher, has chosen sides. Yes, yes, they did. Episode 82. I got the show notes from our fantastic podcast uh, show note writers because uh, they do a much better job at it than I did. Uh, if you've noticed, our show notes have improved dramatically since we've brought them on board. Uh, they said in the lightning round feedback for last week's show, Ryan takes this week's point, leaving the score at Jonathan 7, Justin 9, and Ryan 4. Uh, but you're poor in points, Ryan, but you're rich in fan support, clearly tipping their hand that Ryan is their, their go-to underdog of choice in the lightning round competition. So there you go. We'll continue to pay them because we like them. But uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've taken note <laughs> of this, of this, uh, you know, this backstabbing has occurred. Was it the IPA? Uh, what, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I'm going to take my victory lap all the same. Uh, there you go. Very happy to get, you know, a, a piece of fans. It is really it is really enjoyable to read the Padreacher note show notes because uh, they they slip stuff in sometimes that uh, just makes me laugh. So I just I really enjoy it. That that cracked me up last week when I was reading the show notes for eighty two. I was like, oh, nice, <laughs> Ryan. They're all about Ryan. Under everyone likes an underdog. Let's let's be honest. I've got an advantage there. 
by losing. But now are you still the underdog? Mm. Uh, at at four points, yes, yes, I'm oh, very much still the fair. underdog. Yes, <laughs> still doing better than Peter at zero points. So. <laughs> but Peter always wins. <laughs> Speaking of underdogs, as your policy compliance scan action for GitHub workflows is now in public preview. If you ever wanted to get a bunch of people off of GitHub, give them compliance. <laughs> 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 no that was pretty good uh amazon connect allows contact centers to auto resolve to the best voice and that voice is annoyed caller which coach do you pick ah you did you stole ah no he totally did he knew it (laughs) he he planned that out from the beginning you could see it in the pre-show. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think say, I know the cultural I reference. I don't even know what you said. There's, there's a reality television show called The Voice, which you uh, choose your judge. Yes, I've seen The Voice. And, and, uh, and that was the pop culture reference that yep. Jonathan <laughs> knew I was going to make. And he nicely, like, he should almost get a point for the, the strategy. The point for really. the steal. That's another, yeah. that's another voice reference. You should have blocked the block button. <laughs> oh I haven't watched The Voice since it first came out. Yeah. Amazon Chime introduces Amazon Voice Focus for Noise Suppression. Finally, I don't have to hear my Amazon team, uh, all their children in the background anymore because they have hmm. noise suppression. Excellent. I'm so burned by Jonathan. I would like to suppress his comment on the last <laughs> <one> <laughs> Excellent. There are now six new training courses for Amazon Connect. Hopefully this will help me connect the dots on Amazon Connect. None of them are for the API. Horrendous <laughs> puns. There is no API. Oh, man. Justin, you know I love horrible puns. <laughs> I, know. I know. You might get this. You might win the whole day just from horrible Lightning round has become a strategy game. It's mm-hmm. more chess than, than yeah. More chess than it is mm-hmm. humor at this point. Yes. <laughs> Amplify, Amplify Flutter. Amplify. Ampli, ampl, That's harder to say. Amplify. Yeah. <laughs> say it five times fast. Amplify Flutter. Amplify Flutter. Amplify Flutter. Okay. Amplify. Amplify. I can't say it. Ampli, <laughs> all right. Here we go. Amplify uh, Flutter. Now available as developer preview. And as I rapidly rewrite my mobile app in Flutter, my heart is a Flutter. Oh, how cute. I hate cute. (laughs) (laughs) Negative points. (laughs) Amazon Transcribe now supports speaker labeling for streaming transcription. So now whenever, you know, the the transcribe is just me slurring, it'll have my name next to it. Excellent. That's right. (laughs) As you've noticed from our transcribing software, uh, it doesn't do a very good job labeling speakers. So, <laughs> like, why why is Jonathan, Justin, and Peter all labeled as Justin? Yeah. Uh, apparently, can't tell a British accent apart. That's what happens. Amazon SES now enables customers to bulk import and bulk delete email addresses from the account level suppression list. Just one more way to troll your IT team and trying to figure out why your email's broken once again. 
Is there a way I can pay to get my name on every bulk delete email list? Because that would be fantastic. What if you could get paid to get it on every bulk import list? To get my name on the bulk import list? Yeah, oh, no, I'm, you, I'm, you get paid for it, though. What if you got paid for it? Oh, if I was actually receiving money for trying yeah, to, yeah, yeah. No, that, this would be okay. Yeah, all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm, I'm on board. Azure support to assess physical AWS GCP servers is now generally available. And the reward for worst headline of the day goes to Azure for this, because <laughs> yes. I have no idea what this even is. It's like the plumber. They're going like, to assess. <sighs> yeah. I don't know which cloud you're using, but you should use as. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> AWS App Mesh Controller for Kubernetes version 1.1.1 is now available with support for new mesh configuration controls. As long as that configuration control is turned to 11, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I love the 11s. I love the 11s. I mean, it's, it's easy to go with with 111. I mean, yeah, on. that makes perfect sense. An app mesh or any kind of application mesh should be always turned to 11. Mm-hmm. be honest yes price change notice for customers using amazon pinpoint to send sm messages to india and uh the reason it's not it's a notice and not a price change price decrease is because it's not a decrease it's an increase i mean if it was any other service but pinpoint people might be enraged on twitter but this one kind of went by with a, a bit of a whimper I did notice my my notification subscriptions started adding Pinpoint as like an aside to you know SES and SNS and so it's like please use our service <laughs> please sir give me your yeah. pay for, <laughs> yeah. it's the cost to pay it's, for their additional it's practically marketing practically free yeah yeah I mean it's like a, it's a, it's an increase of like point zero zero seven cents per message so it's not a huge price but still a price increase first one. Uh, for those who are interested in learning more about managed blockchain from Amazon, there's a new digital training course available. And after I took the course, I still don't understand blockchain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of Step one, of those one explain blockchain again in a way that possibly I might understand. <laughs> it's totally private, yet somehow it's totally transparent. All in one. But what if you figure out what my ID, what my, my key seed number is well then we know who you are well that's not that's not that great well i mean it's the you know the twitter hack you know they largely found a lot of the accomplices based on their their wallet ids so it's a little less transparent than i would like it to be all of a sudden uh aws transfer family adds support for email addresses as usernames it's really nice that they let their interns figure out how to do escaping of characters properly it's really good <laughs> Well, nothing will add security to FTP protocols like, you know, an email address instead of a username. It's, it's like a halfway to SSO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like halfway in your email. Quarter, yes. Away? Yeah. Yes. But no. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to 1981. I get that in mobile apps all the time. And I was like, log in with your Google account. Yes. Single sign-on. Now it's use a password. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
AWS Data Migration Service now supports MongoDB 4.0 as a source, which I believe also is compatible with MongoDB, by the way. But not as a destination. They don't support MongoDB 4 extensions yet. Uh, I was more concerned that they... They just got 4.0 support, considering there's 4.2.9, 4.4.0, and 4.4.1 out now. But you know, you know, if you want to migrate from Mongo, I guess that that's what you need to do. You can migrate from Mongo as long as you're not using any features from Mongo 4. Well, I mean, if you're not using any features from Mongo 4, why aren't you just going to document DB? Like, With save yourself MongoDB the trouble. Compatibility. With MongoDB. AWS Storage Gateway adds data protection features for tape gateway. I can just see the little robot breaking little tabs out the back of the tapes now. Right protected. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those things. <laughs> virtual, virtual tab breaker. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my God, that's great. God, I remember doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Microsoft TypeScript 4.0 is generally available. We finally learned why I hate TypeScript so much. Because it's made by Microsoft. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) I had one, but it's not that good. So I'm going to pass on. You should have jumped in first, Ryan. That's how it works. I know, I know. Reaction time. Don't get it. I'm so torn. You guys did such a good job today. I'm so torn, but... The only thing I can look at is that if I give the win to Justin, it's win number 11. It is. Oh, it turns it up to 11. It turns it up to 11, and I have to do it. I have to do it, even though I love the tabs. I love the tabs Mm -hmm. on that data protection. I'm so sorry, but I have to turn Justin up to 11 right now. I'm going to demand so some I, I, constitutional reform here. I think we're going to have prioritized voting. You should rank us one, two, three. I think Ooh. like an elevator. We just, oh, we skip. yeah. Maybe, maybe next year when we reset the competition, we change them. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. So unlike a I democracy. Do, I, I was. <laughs> which this is my rule. <laughs> so, so here's a guy talking about how he's Greek, complaining about democracy. <laughs> Not complaining. You know, there's only one person in the world. Who doesn't want democracy? That's the king. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yep, yeah, that's fair. See, I, I sort of thought you were going to give it to Ryan just because you wanted to also get into the good graces of the Podreacher editors. Oh, uh, I don't. No, that yeah, that would have been a total sellout. But I really, really, when you threw the, rem, made me remember those little freaking notches on the drives that that almost got me. That would have won if it weren't if Justin were at nine or eleven already, then you would have won it. And you complained to me about using the UDP joke more than once. And you complained to me about <laughs> no, using the UDP it. joke more than once. Again, he is the yeah. king. He can, choose, <laughs> he can choose whatever he wants to do. And Justin's won on the 11 more than once now. Uh, yeah. He I'm has used it. But I think this is the first time he's won with it. I think it's the first one to 11. You know, it has an yeah. advantage. And I think that's fair, honestly. Yeah. Let's, let's, oh, you know, I'll play it for the full full year next year. Oh well, we, uh, yeah, this is an action-packed show. I think we should we should probably get moving because the cloud keeps moving <laughs> ever forward, and so we should too. All so right. uh, it's been a great evening once again, gentlemen. Uh, it's time for libations and drinks and all the good fun of debauchery of the rest of the night. So off to the race as we go, and uh, we'll see you here next week on the Cloud Pod. Good night. See you later. Oh, it's more libations, Bye, everybody. Ryan. More libations. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs>
that is the week in cloud. We would like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Commvault. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us with the hashtag #PoundTheCloudPod. Thank you.